The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. My guest today is uh, Henry Orty, Investment Director at uh, Gresham Ventures which is the venture arm of Gresham House. Now, Henry has eight years' experience in private equity and growth capital investment. Henry's particularly interested in process and workflow automation software, also digital transformation, and scale-ups looking to improve the use of data and analytics. So, uh, Henry, welcome to the uh, Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan. Thank you very much, Gary. Great to be here. Now, just kicking things off, I'm keen to hear a little bit about your journey into becoming a VC. So what attracted you to the cutthroat world of venture investing? I started my career in strategy consulting. Um, and so started in, in 2006 in a, a boutique firm focused on the telecoms and, and media sectors. And you know, 2006, 2007, so you saw the iPhone being launched. It was a lot of helping telecoms companies work out what they should be doing and how they should be looking at the media landscape and equally helping media firms work out and look at you know what what the impact of, of you know, the widespread use of mobile internet and the iPhone was going to be. So the so the, the crossover and blending of those of those two worlds. And we did a lot of interesting strategy projects for sort of big, big media and telecoms companies. And a big part of what we did was helping typically sort of large private equity funds with their diligence work. And we worked on some sort of relatively big acquisitions of, of businesses like Endemol, who made Big Brother and the UK's uh, a business called Arkiva that was the UK's um, broadcast infrastructure. And I suppose I, I looked at that and thought, actually, you know, we were doing one small bit of that investment process, but actually there was this, you know, beyond the commercial diligence we were doing, you know, the really the thing that really excited me was getting involved in those companies once the investments investments had been made and helping them sort of continue to grow, grow and expand and work out strategically what they should do and how they should position themselves. And so I sort of made that leap, I guess, from the pure advisory side of, of things over to the investment side. And, and that's what I've been doing, as you say, for the last eight years, always focused on the telecom uh, or on the technology space, rather, with a combination, I suppose, of kind of VC experience, where I, where I now am at Gresham House Ventures, and also more traditional private equity experience as well. And I think there's something quite interesting about bringing those two sides of it together and the two different ways of looking at the world from an investment point of view together. Walk me through that a little bit, the differences between PE investing and, and venture investing and um, what you've learned about bringing the two sides together. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think it's really interesting because I do think it's starting, you know, you're, you're seeing a lot of big private equity funds launch their own sort of growth equity divisions and, and units. And I think actually the two worlds are starting to become much closer together than they historically were. You know, historically you would have said, well, you've got VC over here, it's so probably mischaracterize it. It's chasing unicorns. You put your money in. Ninety percent of everything goes bust, but you know one percent of everything is Uber. So you know that that's how you make your money. And then PE, you would have said, look, much more stable cash generative businesses that you load up with debt. You buy. You know they. You make your money essentially by paying the debt down and growing those businesses a bit and doing a bit of operational improvement around the edges. But really, you know, a lot of financial engineering in that bit of the world that wasn't in VC. And actually, now I think there's this whole spectrum of Funds and that growth equity bit sits right in the middle, actually, where you're you're looking for businesses that, you know, they're not necessarily going to be unicorns, they're not necessarily going to be worth billions and billions of, of pounds or dollars, but they are on a really good growth trajectory. 
and they need capital to help them continue to do that. And actually, that money, you know, traditionally, P was all about taking money out of businesses. I think there's there's a bit in the middle, which is taking a PE mindset and putting money into businesses to help them grow and scale, acknowledging that, you know, perhaps not all, you know, you're, you're not trying to find the Uber, you're just trying to help some really great businesses grow and scale. So more of a kind of PE mindset in terms of you expect everything to do well, but bringing a bit of the venture mindset, which is actually, you know, those businesses are not sort of 10 or 20% growth rate businesses, they are 30 to 100% year on year growth rate businesses. So I, I think there's, I think actually, there's much more of a spectrum now of, of investment opportunities rather than these kind of two polar opposites. And there are also so many new VC funds popping up, a seemingly unlimited supply of funding these days for tech startups coming, as you pointed out, from the PE world moving into growth equity and from you know, dozens, maybe hundreds even, of, uh, of new um, venture funds. Why should founders choose Gresham Ventures as their lead investor? What's what what's your USP? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, and I think you know it feels all the more pressing now because you know you, you do have a host of new funds coming up. You've got PE moving into that world. You've got you know hedge funds looking at sort of making big venture investments as well. So there's you know it's a much more crowded space I think than it than it used to be, and there's you know there's a lot more money chasing after you know great opportunities and i think i think in that ecosystem there are a lot of different people who have really different strengths for different bits of the journey and so i suppose you know beyond obviously the, the reasons why i think people should choose us specifically but in terms of the kind of funds that we represent that sort of relatively patient equity helping at a bit of the a bit of the journey which is that sort of post seed series a series b type stage i think there are lots of funds that are positioned Larger than that, or positioned on a more venture basis than than we are. So, I think I think I guess part of the answer to that is, although it, it is a really crowded ecosystem, I think actually if you look at it, different funds a bit reductive sometimes. And actually, you know, our risk profile is totally different to an Axel's risk profile, which is totally different to a Blackstone growth risk profile. I think to the sort of specific question you asked, Gary, which is look, why choose us? I think there are probably two or three things that we we really bring. So. We're, what we what I don't think we're really good at is helping a business get from a couple of million of revenue, so say two or three million of revenue up to about 10 million of revenue and helping businesses on that stage of the journey because it is a there's a very specific set of challenges that those businesses face, typically going from being founder sales focused, that kind of proper bootstraps sort of scaling piece through to trying to build a really scalable organization that actually can deal with the rigors of growth and a business that 10 million pounds of recurring revenue is not just a business, it's not just five times the size of a business, 2 million pounds of revenue. So helping people along that bit of the journey, that, that's what we've done time and time again. And what we've done ourselves to help businesses along, along that way is bring some of those experiences and, and competencies in-house. So we've got people like a head of talent who helps our portfolio companies find really great sort of non-execs and, and C-suites. Um, we've got a head of technology who helps businesses think through the technology decisions they make and the tech roadmap. The, the unique bit that I think we at Gresham House Ventures bring together is a real understanding of the public markets and the quoted markets alongside, you know, there's a lot of people who are expert in unquoted and, and the private markets. We've got a team that's in the public markets, which is as big as we have in the private markets. So that cross, that sort of feed from one to the other and the sort of cross fertilization between the two actually is really productive because we have a really good understanding of 
what do the public markets look for? What are acquirers in the public markets look for? What do you need to do to IPO? What do you need to look like to IPO? Because we're investing in those on one side and then helping you know, private companies on the other think through some of those decisions. And you know, so we can genuinely say, look, to businesses we invest in, we are as able to help you on thinking through an IPO and as able to help support you in an IPO as we are able to help support you in your next funding round or thinking through whether you should sell to a strategic acquirer. So actually having all three of those sort of future opportunities balanced equally, I think is, is something that actually not a lot of other funds have. Do you actually um, stress that point in the way you engage with and market your fund that we're we're the fund in Europe that can really help you if your ultimate aim is is to go IPO because so many exits are actually trade sales rather than IPOs. So do you make a big song and dance about your IPO credentials? We do. We we talk about it a lot. And I think if you look at our, our track record, you know, lots of what we do is the same. You know, it it's it is a lot of trade exits, a lot of further funding rounds or exits to private equity funds. So you know we we don't say Look, if you're coming in with us, you have to go on a, you know, you, you don't have to go on an IPO journey or, you know, the public markets aren't right for everyone. But I think what what we what we do like to say is all three of those routes should be equally considered. And actually the public markets are really great for some businesses and frankly, you know, not not necessarily the right way to go for others. But you should, you know, you should there's no reason to take that off the table prematurely. You should be considering all three of those options at the same time. And some of our, you know, some of our longest involvement with the businesses that we've worked with has been businesses, one, one in particular, um, we were invested in for 13 years and then became a big shareholder at IPO. This was this was sort of a, a decade and a half ago now and remained a big shareholder for a long period of time afterwards. So it's, as I say, it's not right for all businesses, but it's it's definitely something that people should be thinking about. And I think, you know, there's a bit of a kind of mindset now or a trend of companies staying private for much longer because actually there's lots of liquidity in the private markets and there's lots of access to capital in the private markets. And again, you know, for lots of businesses, that, that is the right thing to do. But you don't, you know, you shouldn't don't write the public markets off, I suppose, is, is what we're saying to a lot of businesses. You know, have have that as a part of what you're what you're considering. Yeah. And long before any venture actually gets the chance to do an exit, whether it be a trade exit or an IPO, they really have to figure out how to scale. And so many European B2B SaaS ventures really struggle with the scale-up phase, getting from three, four, five million ARR up to 10 million ARR and beyond. So why is that such a challenge in Europe? And what advice do you have for European ventures trying to scale to the next level? Look, I think historically there's probably been a lack of um, sort of comparators or, or people, you know, sort of leading lights that businesses could could sort of take benchmarks from. I think actually that information is becoming a lot better sort of disseminated across the market. There's a lot more um, a lot more awareness of what you need to do, what the kind of core metrics you're looking for are, and, and how to grow and scale a B2B SaaS business in Europe now than I think there probably was, you know, if you look back five years or so. So I think part of it is is knowledge and information. I think part of it, I do think there's a cultural element here to you know people taking if European entrepreneurs, some of the businesses we work with, get offered you know fifty to hundred million pound exits with founders who still own a decent chunk of the business, actually, for lots of people, that's quite an attractive, you know, that's quite an attractive option where, say, historically in the US, some of those people would have carried on for longer um, and, you know, grown and scaled those businesses for, for much longer. So I think I think there probably is a bit of that cultural piece to it. And, and you know, just people sort of going, well, look, you know, I can see my way to making double digit millions on an exit. I'm going to seize that opportunity now and kind of 
bird in the hand rather than kind of carry on and grow and scale the business. But I think we're seeing no, certainly now, no lack of ambition in European entrepreneurs in terms of the kind of exits they're trying to get to and the sorts of businesses, frankly, they're, they're trying to grow. And I think a lot of the a lot of the sort of US mindset and culture has has trickled over to our to the European B2B founders benefit. I think you're absolutely right. It's a really difficult phase to go through and and get from that sort of you know say three to ten. And I think it's because the things that get you to three aren't the things that get you to ten. And I like to think that part of what we bring and you know any other investor, any other good investor brings on that on that journey is an appreciation of what you need to do. So you need to have most likely, you know, really strong, experienced C-suite of executives who can build the teams underneath them to make a business scalable to get from A to B. You know, whereas actually getting getting up to about two or three million, you can afford to be mostly founder-driven, founder-driven sales. You know, you don't necessarily have to find scalable and repeatable ways of of doing things. You can sort of work your way towards towards that. And I think that that mindset shift and, and the change in capabilities that, that's required is not something that all business, I mean, not all businesses want to do that for a start. And I think secondly, you know, a lot of founders have been really, really great at getting to the two, two or three million pound level, but then just don't, perhaps don't quite hire quickly enough at a senior enough level to allow them to get to that next stage. I think that's the, and probably the thing that we're most often doing when we go into businesses is going either pre or post investment is, is helping them think through actually what does that organizational chart need to look like in five years time? And how do you try and grab some of the people today who can still be with you in five years' time and will have helped you get to that point. Question on, on that, because in a, in a way we're talking about talent here. So are your founders prepared to pay the kinds of salaries that it takes and offer the kind of equity that it takes to bring on the talent that can scale them to that level? Because salaries for people with those credentials are sky high these days. Yeah, they they absolutely the salaries absolutely are sky high, and and I think we're seeing, and it's probably partly because there's so much capital in the market, and partly because you know, and and therefore there are people who are looking, lots of people are looking to scale. Actually, the demand for really great CFOs, heads of sales, you know, all CTOs, all those kind of key roles, and actually the the sort of heads of under sit underneath them, it is absolutely sky high, and and I think we're having to see our portfolio pay, I don't know, probably something to, in the order of ten or twenty percent more as an overall package than they would have even twelve months ago. It's a very real appreciation there. And actually, often what we're doing through our head of talents is going into businesses and sort of explaining, you know, look, actually, if you want to hire someone really great, this is the package you'll need to offer. And you know what? It's probably going to be more than you've ever paid anyone, including yourself in that company, in, in the company ever before. It's going to feel really, really uncomfortable. But actually, that's, you know, that that's that's what we see in the market you need to do to, to get the right people. So, and equally, there's a little bit of, look, trust us as the investors who've seen this happen before, if you get those right people and it clicks in a business, then you know it will feel dramatically different in 12 months' time, 18 months' time to how it does today. Because actually you as the CEO are probably currently doing about five people's jobs and you just need to push some of that down. And then actually you will have the headspace all of a sudden to think about your business rather than just be, you know, being the chief legal officer one day and then being the CFO the next day. I think there is there's often a bit of a there's a discussion and a conversation and we bring our benchmarks to bear across our portfolio of look you know here's the average salary for x and here's the average comp package comp package for x i think uh, what and I, I don't know whether you've seen this as well Gary, but i think what what we're seeing which is quite interesting is a, again at that sort of sweet c suite level 
the US sort of equity mindset is a lot more is, is becoming a lot more entrenched. So actually, you know, people are the reason people are joining the kind of businesses we're backing is because they want they want the equity and they want the equity upside. It's not about necessarily getting, you know, I, I need a sort of massive um sort of top of range six figure salary here. Actually, I'm, you know, I'm I'm in it. You know, obviously it's got to be commensurate with my with with whoever it is is experience. But actually I want, you know, I'm I'm in it for the percentage of the equity and, and the future upside. And people are a lot, you know, people are savvier, I think, and people are asking a lot of the right questions around, okay, you know, what was the last funding round raised at? What's the waterfall like? You know, thinking like investors in these businesses, which, you know, frankly, we 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 really like because I would much rather have people who are equity incentivized in businesses that we invest in. You know, ultimately, does it sort of end up costing more because hopefully the equity is worth a lot more than the salary would have paid someone? Yes, it does. But actually, you have people who are really committed and dedicated and and are sitting on effectively on our side of the fence as shareholders, going, how do we maximize shareholder value here? So, I I think it's I think it's in some ways, it, you know, it is more expensive, but I think it's a really healthy development for the ecosystem in a in a funny way. Um, even though you know, you sort of all everything else being equal, obviously, you'd rather you'd rather pay less rather than more. But actually, I think it's a, it is a good thing. Absolutely. On that point about the equity mindset, for me, if a senior level hire is not spending a lot of time trying to figure out the equity upside, then that for me is actually a, a red flag. I very much expect that from any any um, exec hire for our clients that they're going to be pushing for the best possible um, equity involvement they can uh, they can negotiate and, and they should also have at least some mindset of okay i'll accept a slightly lower salary than i might otherwise push for at the top 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 end if i can if i can get that equity up a little bit a little bit higher so we we look for that as a as a mindset for sure a slight change of direction when we last spoke you mentioned how important ESG criteria are for for Gresham. That's environmental, social, and governance. How important that that is to your investing ethos. Now, is that driven by a moral stance or more of a belief that in the next five to ten years, uh, companies that embrace ESG will will actually deliver the best returns? It's a really good question. I think I think there's a number of drivers for it. And you know, on the one hand, if if you sit there in a slightly cynical way and, and go, well, you know, look, who are we? We have two sets of ultimate customers. We have the businesses that we we invest in, and we have the clients that are backing us. And I think on both sides of that, actually, ESG is becoming more important, and particularly so on the, uh, I guess, our, our clients, the people who entrust us with their with their money, our investors and, and LPs. ESG issues are are rising in importance. For investors in funds, and so you know, it's incumbent on us as people who are investing their money on their behalf to to bring that into consideration and to you know make sure that we reflect that and we are we are driving that. That's a, definitely a part of it. I think also we as a team moved to Gresham House in 2018. Gresham House has got a lot of strength in areas like forestry, sort of sustainable housing, renewables, real assets. So I suppose we moved from a from a kind of private equity house, which where that was you know a part of the consideration. To a world where actually you know those things are being brought to our attention much more forcefully and interesting frankly interesting opportunities are coming much more forcefully to our attention as well so there's a you know there's a bit of sitting in an environment where it is considered to be really important in a, and in a fund where it, you know a set of funds where it is considered really important and then i think finally you know gary exactly as you say this is something that you know this is not a sort of flash in the pan this is something that in five years time is going to be continue becoming much more important 
to the corporate world in general. And so we, frankly, as investors, we see real opportunities to grow some great business, ESG-focused businesses, um, you know, things like helping businesses better capture data around what they're doing in ESG, helping other investors better capture data around, you know, the ESG impact of their portfolio. Things like that are, are sort of relatively nascent now, but in five years' time, we expect them to be absolutely part of the sort of day-to-day of what almost every business does. So, you know, there's there's a good sort of old, old-fashioned profit motive that drives our interest as well, really, because we, we just think there are some great investments to be made. And it is still, it's still at that nascent enough stage where you, you've got an opportunity to back some real sort of category winners. Tell me about your most recent investment. What compelled you to invest in that particular business? Absolutely. So the most recent investment that I, I made, we closed about a month ago now. It's a business called Patchworks, which is actually in the e-commerce support, so picks and shovels for the e-commerce world. They do the integration between the different elements of an e-commerce store's stack. So your Shopify front end, your NetSuite ERP, your warehouse management system, your third-party logistics provider, and your, your marketing system. So it's in line with a couple of things that we've we spent a lot, a lot of time thinking about. So we spend a lot of time really in three sectors. So those being e-commerce, healthcare, and financial and professional services. So this, this slotted very nicely into our understanding of the, of the e-commerce world and fitted very nicely in with a, with a thesis we have, which is... So people are increasingly picking these best of breed systems. So rather than going to Salesforce for everything CRM related, or you know historically going to maybe SAP or Siebel, you know, but buying one monolithic system that does everything in your business, actually people are increasingly wanting to choose best of breed systems for various different bits. You know, you, you don't want the same people doing your marketing system who are doing your front end store that are doing your ERP, and that comes with this integration challenge of trying to sort of wrap it all, bring it all together, frankly, in a way that isn't doesn't involve you sort of tearing your hair out and the biggest customer that Patchworks, uh, the long one of the longest standing customers Patchworks have is Gymshark, and they had a helping them manage their Black Friday operations and making sure orders get routed to the right places is is really uh, really important for them. So it was a business that we've known or I've I've known for for a while. So I guess that's you know part of what we try and do. Obviously, is, is reach businesses at relatively early stages, have some you know have conversations, understand where they are, help them along the way, and then at the right point get back in touch with them and, and put some money behind them. And that this is exactly what happened in that in, in this case with, with Patchwork. So it, it fitted out, it fitted the thesis we had, it fit, you know, the, sort of the way that we like to work. And and it was also a business where we thought we could really bring some sort of particularly actually that talent piece to bear. So really help the business grow and develop. And we've already, as part of our investment process, we've helped them find a new chairman. We have put two of us, uh, one uh, have joined the board of the business, and we're helping them do some quite senior level hires at the moment because we can, you know, this is a business where there's a massive market opportunity. And we are exactly as we said earlier, you know, helping them find the people who can take the business on for the next sort of four or five years. So it, it was it was just a really nice overlap of those the three areas that we, we think we can add real value in. And did the getting to know them phase happen virtually? due to COVID, due to lockdowns, or were you already in touch with them and getting to know them well before the pandemic hit? So I'd had conversations with them, but as I say, you know, a fair few years ago now, face to face to face. And then we did actually that that getting to know them bit from about February this year, again, all virtually initially. So we probably spent I don't know how many hours sitting on sitting on Zooms with various different members of the team, meeting everyone, meeting uh, you know, having lots of conversations with the with the CEO. Just spending, I guess, because it was done all, all done virtually initially. You know, we probably spent twice as long as we would have if we'd, we'd done face to face. But actually, you know, it's a lot easier to 
to hold those meetings. And their team is given up their office in COVID and their team is sort of dispersed across the UK. They've got a head of engineering who's based in Northern Ireland. They've got some of the team are in Scotland. Some of the team are based down in Kent. Some of them are based in the Midlands. So actually, you know, you would always have had an element of virtual meetings because that, you know, that that's how the businesses and lots of the businesses we now see operate. Actually, they don't have necessarily one fixed location. And then what we did as we sort of got into the process and we got into the diligence is we, we went up and we, we, we got all the team together and we brought up a couple of us as well. And we just sat and had, you know, had lunch, went through various things, spent various half days with the team as well, just, just sitting and getting to know them better. So it was, it was a bit of a combination of the, of the two, really. But I think we are finding that actually doing things virtually is, is a very effective way of sort of getting up to speed on businesses relatively quickly. And then we, you know, complementing that with face-to-face meetings, actually spending a lot more time with the business as we, you know, want to get into understanding personalities and what drives people and, and those sorts of things more. Tell me about the one that got away, the company in the last eight, nine years that you had you had the opportunity to invest in, but for whatever reason you missed out and you've been kicking yourself ever since because they've gone on to be a, a bit of a rock star company. To be fair, there are lots, <laughs> there are lots of those. Every business that we sort of chase after enthusiastically and and, and don't get, I I, you know, I'm quite a competitive individual so i feel i feel immensely irritated by i think there are probably two or three things that all of those sort of experiences have, have taught me and i think one is you know we I, mean, we I think i always have but increasingly you know we come in we try and be ultra transparent we try and put our best offer on the table first you know there's no sort of attempt to to short change businesses we try and be really honest about what we think we can do the valuations we can offer the terms we can offer and you know you know go if that works for you We'd love to work, press, you know, press on and, and, and go forward. If it doesn't, we don't want to waste your time. And, you know, just I, I think just trying to short shortcut some of the slightly cloak and dagger negotiations sometimes where you're trying to work out, you know, well, what can we offer? What are other people offering? Just just trying to be really straightforward, really honest about it. I think that's something that, you know, we do all the time now and, and have done for, for a while, but just just trying to get to a, the right get to the right answer as quickly as possible. Because founders are busy people and they don't have the time to mess around. I think the other thing that frustrates me is where I, I I think businesses go with other investors because we haven't explained what we can do well enough. And I think, you know, as a founder, you meet a lot of investors. I think lots of those investors promise ultimately a lot of the same things. They go, look, you know, we'll give you some money, we'll give you some help. We will, you know, help you grow your business and we'll help you do the do all of the do all the things that we think you need to do. And I think it, it a lot of it sounds the same. I think the reality is how how investors work with businesses is actually very different. I don't think that's always immediately obvious. And I think one of the challenges for us as us as investors all the time is to work out how do we better explain what we do. And I, and I, the one frustration I have actually is, it, which happens sometimes is when we we make references or make introductions to existing in portfolio companies because we go look, go and talk to some of the the best. You know, you can listen to me talk as long as you like about how great we are and all the great things we do and why we're different to other people. But just go and talk to some of our investee companies because ultimately, you know, they will they are the best judges of what we've done and whether it works, whether it doesn't. And, you know, I, I say to people, all of our portfolios on the website, so I can make some introductions to people, you know, who've worked with me, but actually LinkedIn exists, right? Go on LinkedIn, find some people I've worked with, LinkedIn message them and ask them what it's like. And, you know, they may come back and ask me whether it's fine to speak to you. And I'll say yes, because I, you know, I'm happy to speak to anyone. So, and the frustration I have is when we do that and then people make a decision without taking those references. And I sort of go, well, you wouldn't jump into a marriage without, you know, without having done, you know, a level of diligence and a level, having, you know, a level of conversation. So I've been spoken to some ex 
ex-boyfriends and, and girlfriends. <laughs> if, if you could, right? So so just, you know, I, I do, it really frustrates me when people don't take those references because I think it's such a critical bit. Of, you know, otherwise you are genuinely jumping in blind based on what a bunch of people have, have, have sat there and told you they'll do. Everyone's got a sales pitch, right? Everyone's, everyone's got a story that they can tell about how great they are and why they're the right people to work with. And, and I think the diligence process should work both ways, right? We do a lot of diligence on the businesses that we invest in ultimately. I, you know, if, if I were a founder, I would absolutely kick the tires and go, give me, you know, don't just give me the one or two people who will say lovely things about you, but give me, you know, give me five or give me the two people who were going to say, give me some really difficult situations, give me some things where you, which you've lost money on. And let me talk to the, the chairs and the CEOs of those businesses. And, you know, how did you behave when life got difficult? Because actually that, you know, every, everyone's a great investor and everyone's, you know, when things are going really well, everyone sits around a board table delighted and, and life is typically very, uh, you know, relatively easy. It's actually when things get difficult that you need, you sort of, you see how, how people really behave. I think that, you know, in, in terms of things, the, the, one, the ones that get away because I feel they haven't, you know, ultimately people don't haven't made the right decision because they haven't taken those references. Those are the, those are the ones that frustrate me more than anything else. It's a, a great approach to take with your portfolio companies when they're hiring their uh, C-suite executives as well. By the way, so I would uh, I would recommend you get them to follow a very similar approach when they're uh, just about to make an offer to someone. Awesome, Henry! Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing with me your eight nine years of growth equity ideas and and learnings. And uh, um, now you're back from your sunny Caribbean vacation. Hope you uh, settle down nicely into life back in England. Thank you very much, Gary. Great to great to talk. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 